Well, we're going to think about Isaiah chapter 6 and, in fact, the, uh, the whole personality of Isaiah in the, in the talk today. Now, we're preparing our minds for the, for the breaking of bread, and so, <clears throat> actually, Isaiah 6 is strangely relevant to the death of the Lord uh, on the cross. We're told that he, he sees this, uh, this, this uh, great vision where the Lord is high and lifted up, verse 1. <clears throat> but who is this Lord that he sees here? Well, we've got a help there in, in John 12, where in fact this uh, chapter, part of this chapter, is, is quoted. Uh, the reference is in John 12, 37 to 41, where the, the comment is, uh, is made, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, that is the glory of the Lord Jesus, and he spoke about him. So then this vision of the Lord high and lifted up is in fact a vision of the Lord Jesus. Now when was he high and lifted up? Well, you've got the, uh, <clears throat> the, the same phrase occurs later in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, at uh, the beginning of that classic prediction of the Lord's, uh, the Lord's crucifixion. Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal, deal wisely, he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. So then, when he was lifted up on the cross, as you know how Isaiah 52, 13 is the lead-in to chapter 53, the whole prediction of the Lord's, uh, the Lord's death, the high and lifted up one is the Lord Jesus in his time of dying. And you see here how, in fact, the, the veil of the temple, it seems, from verse 4 of Isaiah 6, uh, falls down because the, the posts of the threshold of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and entrance into the temple is not possible, it's filled with smoke, and the Lord's train, his robe, as it were, fills the temple, so that Isaiah, is, as I understand it, is standing there at the, uh, at the entrance, and the veil falls down, and he, he looks in. And uh, if you want the reference, that's Matthew 27, verse, uh, verse 51. Also, going back to John 12 there, 37 to 41, what John does is to quote some verses from Isaiah 53, and then hear from Isaiah 6, and he says, that's what Isaiah said when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus and spoke about him. So in John's mind, inspired mind, he puts together the two prophecies of Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. So then we see that from God's perspective, when the Lord Jesus was there on the cross, high and lifted up, he was in fact glorified in the eyes of, of God. And just on a very simple level, you see there how what may appear in the eyes of men, in the eyes of this world, to be absolute defeat, the nadir, the, the low point, absolutely pathetic failure, that is in fact glory, in some cases, in the eyes of God, because there is a complete inversion of values when it comes to the way that God looks at things. What may appear to be complete failure is, in fact, in God's eyes, something different. Now, out of this vision that Isaiah sees, he is convicted of his sin. He says, woe is me, I'm undone, or I am dumb, verse 5, because I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then out of that same vision, which has, as it were, elicited his own sinfulness, 
there flies to him this seraph, this angel, with a live coal that he's taken off the altar, touches his lips, and says, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. Verse 8, and then there's a request, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I see that that's um, Isaiah hearing, or overhearing, the discussion in the court of heaven, maybe between God and the angels, who will go for us? And then he pipes up on earth, as it were, and says, here am I, send me. And he's told to go and preach to Israel. So out of that very vision that condemns him, there comes also the assurance of forgiveness and also the commission to go and and spread God's word to other people. And so then in the context of our encounter again with him, in the breaking of bread. We are convicted on these two points. One, we should be unable to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus there on the cross without being convicted of our own sin and failure. And yet also out of that same source of conviction, there comes that conviction of forgiveness and that sense that I can now not be passive. What do you want me to do, Lord? Here am I, send me. And that's why there are these sort of two, I think, possibly contradictory in one sense, uh, feelings that we have at the breaking of bread. The sense of being convicted of sin, and yet the sense of being convicted of absolute and real forgiveness. So that we can go out concretely and do something and share that good news in whatever way it falls to us to do it with others. Now, this vision that we we have here in Isaiah 6, this holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the vision of the the temple, the throne room, the smoke, this is all picked up in Revelation 4 and 5, where, where, as I understand it visually there, we we see the, uh, the vision of the judgment throne, and yet we're told that sort of within that vision, within that uh, judgment throne, there is a lamb as it had been slain. And I visually imagine this as meaning that silhouetted against the vision of the judgment throne, there was this slain slain lamb. That's Revelation 5 verse 6. And there are people in front of it praising the Lord Jesus and recognizing their eternal debt to the blood of his cross. So the idea of judgment and the idea of the death of Jesus are brought together. And that's why just before he died, the Lord could talk about his upcoming death. It's in John 12, 31 and 32, and say, now is the judgment of this world. Therefore, insofar as we come before the Lord Jesus in his time of dying, we, as it were, come before the, the day of judgment. We have a preview of the day of judgment insofar as the cross should elicit an opening of our hearts to God. And I, I think right back when Jesus was there as a little baby and Simeon takes him up in his arms and blesses him, it's in Luke 2, and he says <clears throat> that a sword is going to pierce this child's soul and also the soul of Mary, a prediction of uh, her being present there at the, at the cross, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So then the piercing of the Lord Jesus would reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Now, self-examination is something very, very difficult to do. 
And yet we are assisted in this by coming before the, the cross of Jesus. Because in a sense that is our judgment. That is the judgment of this world. Isaiah 6 says that the Lord was enthroned in glory upon the cross. And John says that Isaiah saw the Lord in his glory at this time. And yet Matthew 25, 31, Jesus will come back, sit upon the throne of his glory, and we will come before the throne of his glory in judgment. And so what are we to do when we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves? Does this mean that we come to the breaking of bread with a list of sins, or we, we try to work out a list of sins during the uh, half hour or so that we're, we're reflecting upon him there. I, I think it's more unconscious than that. We, in the first instance, should be focusing upon him crucified. And that was the context of Paul uh, saying that in 1 Corinthians 11. He, he says that you should um, not be worrying about physically what you're eating and drinking and having a good meal and all that stuff. You should be focused upon Christ crucified for you. And I think if that is our focus, then it will quite naturally elicit from us an awareness of our sinfulness. And yet also, as I said, out of the same vision, there comes the conviction of our, our cleansing to the point that we can then say, well, what would you have me to do? Here am I, send me. So then, that is, I think, why Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about coming together at the day of, uh, sorry, at the breaking of bread to judgment. We do, in fact, come together to judgment. We are, he says that we gather together at the, uh, at the Lord's table. And it's the same idea about people being gathered together to the day of judgment. Now, David looked forward with joy to the day of judgment. All through the Psalms, he can't wait for it. And we should not have the idea that, well, oh, hang, the day of judgment, <clears throat> oh, let's put that off for a bit. Oh, I, I don't want to think about that. This is a joyful meeting with the Lord. And don't forget that he is eager to meet us because quite simply he loves us. And it is as simple as that. He wants to see us. He is eager for us. And we should be eager for him. Eager for all this nonsense on this earth to finish. Eager for our own failure and dysfunction to be over. And at last for us to be with him. And so insofar as we come before him properly, we before his cross, uh, crucifixion in our own minds, uh, realistically and, and as we should do, quite naturally we will have this dual process operating, this sense of conviction and uh, of sin and this sense of real forgiveness. This is why the, uh, the Sephardim uh, Jews, they, they have a tradition to call the Day of Atonement, with all its uh, typology, as it were, of the crucifixion, uh, the Day of Judgment. So then, we, as we break bread, have elicited within us the same basic emotions which we will have as we finally come before him in the last day. Now, let's move on a little bit to think what this actually meant for Isaiah. Because we want to respond properly. So then, Isaiah 
is convicted straight out. Uh, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So why does he focus upon being of unclean lips? Why that part of human failure? We all, as James says, we all fail with our tongue. But you know, he must have had a mass of other sins, just as you and I have. But why, when he's suddenly confronted with this vision of the lifted up in glory, future Messiah, why was he convicted specifically of that area of failure? I think it's because he knew that he was a prophet. And he feels, I cannot do this job. Who am I to speak God's word to other people when I am a man of such unclean lips? And that's why he's cleansed. The, the uh, coal from the altar touches his lips. He's cleansed. And then he's told to go and preach. It's as if he had to be made to realize his own sinfulness, confronted with himself and his own inadequacy before he was adequate. And the only other time you read about the Lord touching somebody's lips is in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, when Jeremiah's also got all these doubts about his own adequacy to, to preach God's word, and his lips are touched, and he's told, now I've touched your lips, now you go and preach. Here, Isaiah's lips are touched to assure him of forgiveness, and then he's told to go and preach. So then, there's a, another similarity with this idea of a, a fire, a coal being taken from the altar by the, the seraphim or the cherubim. And it's in Ezekiel 10, verses 7 and 8, where the same thing happens. The burning coal there is taken from, uh, from within the, uh, the cherubim vision, and that burning coal, we're told, was a symbol of God's judgment, the fire of his anger against his people. So again you see the kind of the dual symbolism here, that the burning coal symbolized both condemnation in Ezekiel and here in Isaiah 6, forgiveness. This idea of a double symbol, you actually see in the symbol of the wine, the cup of wine. Because being given a cup of wine to drink from the Lord's hand is a double symbol. It is a symbol of condemnation. God gives Babylon a cup of wine to drink, a sign of their condemnation. And yet, 1 Corinthians 11, the cup of blessing which we bless, the cup of the blessing of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, so then, this is what brings the, the whole process of breaking of bread to, a, to be a kind of a T-intersection, a T-junction. But it's to the right or to the left. And this is why Paul says, examine yourselves, so that you drink to your blessing and not to your eternal condemnation. There's no third way. And I'm glad that there is no third road. Because if there was a third way, like a, a kind of purgatory, let's say, uh, we would all put our hand up and say, yeah, yeah, that, that, that would be for me. But we are forced, actually, to the realization that there is no third way, that it is to the right or to the left. And ultimately, 
ultimately that is where we will all go, to the right or to the left, because we each one will stand before the judgment seat of the Lord and we will have to go to the right or to the left. And because that is the ultimate choice, in all the, the stream of decisions which you and I have to make, and the things that, particularly I think when we're first baptized, we, we agonize over, should I this, should I that, or should I this or that, or whatever. But ultimately, ultimately, I do think that the decisions come down to right or left, to for God or for the flesh. Drink the wine of condemnation or the wine of blessing. And in one sense, I think, because we all have a conscience, and I accept conscience doesn't always function as it should do, uh, but I, I think as we mature, I think those decisions, those agonies of the soul become less. And I know that the Lord Jesus uh, had such an agony in one sense in Gethsemane, but I don't get the impression that generally in his life he was caught up in the agony of, of decision. I get the impression that he... He knew instinctively the way to decide. And so it should be with, with us. And so it's not something you can force, it's something that, that just happens. Now, Isaiah says, I am dumb. I am undone. But the Hebrew word really means dumb. That's definitely what it means. I'm dumb. I'm undone. In other words, he's saying, okay, so it's not for me to speak God's word. I'm made dumb now. And yet he's convicted that no, he is forgiven. And then he says, he overhears the conversation in heaven, who shall go for us? Well, little man on earth pipes up and says, here am I, send me. So then, conviction of our inadequacy, of our sinfulness, is required before we can really powerfully preach Christ. You can go to seminars and all the rest of it, read books about how to preach powerfully, but the bottom line is this, that love finds a way to connect with people. That's just how it is. You will find your own way to connect with people quite naturally, but you will have to realize, and I mean realize, your inadequacy. And this is actually what happened with all these powerful preachers. You take Paul, of course, the classic example, that he's convicted of his sin, and then he's sent out to preach to the Gentiles. You get it again with, with Peter, when he, with that thing about the, uh, the fish, all the fish, and he comes to land in Luke 5 verse 8, and he says to the Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And what does Jesus say? From now on, I will make you fishers of men. Or the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptize people. This was given by the Lord Jesus to the, to the twelve after he had absolutely dressed them down and said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You did not believe, and you should have done. And this, don't forget, is the Son of God with eyes as a flame of fire, the Prince of the Kings of the Earth, the King of the Cosmos, talking to his friends, having a go at them. That's what he was doing. And you can imagine these guys... Looking at the uh, looking at the ground, shifting from foot to foot, shifting their weight from one side of the body to the other, awkwardness, all the body language of awkwardness, embarrassment, shame, guilt, etc. What does he say at the end of it? Now, 
go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the world, and he that believes and is baptized will be saved, and he that does not believe, brackets, as you guys didn't believe, that's the implication, shall be, shall be damned, condemned. So then they were sent out on that mission, having been absolutely convicted of their own failure and slowness to believe. And then they're sent out. And this is what will happen in your life. People say, oh, I'm not a preacher. I don't meet the right people. You will, quite naturally, if you really have that sense and burden in yourself that, wow, I have been forgiven. And what I love about Isaiah is that he's so quick to believe this. He's one minute bemoaning his complete inadequacy, unworthiness as a preacher with unclean lips, etc. The setter flies to him with a coal, touches his lips and says, your sin is, is purged, your iniquity is taken away. Who shall go and preach for us? Well, here am I, send me. It's immediate. Now, it takes us a long time, to, normally, in, in a human sense, to believe in forgiveness. We sin, we repent. But do you feel that forgiveness instantly? Because in, in our experience of human relationships, it's often the dimming of memory that leads to an appearance of forgiveness. And that's why people say, ah, yeah, time heals. Well, time does not heal morally, I would say. Time heals, yes, in the sense that you forget exactly what the other guy did to you, or she forgets, he forgets, and it all, just time has a way of taking the edge off realities that have occurred. But God's forgiveness is not like that. God's forgiveness, according to what we read here in Isaiah 6, is at a, a, a distinct, concrete point in time. You can time it, if you want, to the nanosecond. It is granted. It was granted to him, and he believed it immediately. No walking around with a sense of awkwardness or guilt or whatever after he's been assured of God's forgiveness. Not at all. Not for a second. Okay, I've been forgiven. Of course, you know, there's an appropriate sense of uh, wonder and, and nervousness and, uh, well, not that's the wrong word, nervousness, but you know what I mean. An appropriate sense of humility, let's say, having received this wonderful forgiveness and just believing it immediately. And that's how we should be. That we should have this regular cycle in our lives of repentance, feeling the forgiveness, and the immediacy of a desire to immediately do something concrete in response to that. Now, as you go on in Isaiah, you come across this idea of being dumb or undone again. And it's in Isaiah 15 verse 1, where Isaiah has to give a prophecy about Moab, who were Israel's enemies, they were Gentiles. And we read Isaiah 15 verse 1, the burden of Moab, Moab is laid waste and brought to silence, same Hebrew word, undone. Because in the night, Kir of Moab is laid waste and brought to silence, undone. Now, this is the very word that Isaiah had used about himself. I am brought to silence by my sins. And so, Isaiah doesn't just utter this prophecy. 
he utters the prophecy and then he says, having said in verse 4 that uh, Heshbon shall cry and weep and the armed men of Moab shall cry out, cry aloud. He then says, verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab like a heifer of three years old. So he found empathy with the condemned, with the Gentiles. Not sympathy, you know, feeling a bit sorry for somebody, but empathy, which, as you know, means that we can feel sympathy for that person on the basis that we have been there. This is not an imagined, trying to get inside someone else's uh, shoes, as it were. We have been there, and we can therefore empathize totally with their situation. Their heart was going to cry out, and Isaiah interjects into the prophecy and says, my heart cries out with these people. Why? Because he knew what it was like to be put to silence because of your sins. So here you see the the wonderful practical uh, outworking of all this, that if you are convicted of your sin, that if you're not so arrogant and up yourself and short of yourself, that, that, well, I'm not a bad guy, really. If you let yourself be convicted, out of that conviction, there will come the ability to empathize with the totally lost, even the condemned Moabites, the condemned Gentiles. And not only with them, but with people within the Ecclesia, within the the house of God, who have failed, let's say. In Isaiah 33, verse 14, we read, The sinners in Zion are afraid. This is within the Ecclesia. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. They say, Who among us shall dwell with the the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Now, the seraphim, the word means the burning ones. So the the hypocrites in the Ecclesia, as they're called here, the sinners in Zion, they say, how can we live with the the burnings, with the burning ones, with the devouring fire? That's just the experience of Isaiah. Exactly, in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim, the burning ones, he said, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm dumb. He had been there. So, On this basis, you will never consider yourself somehow better than that brother or that sister who goes right off the track, is now addicted to heroin, living an immoral life, whatever it might be. You will be able to empathize. And you will not have that attitude that, well, you know, I have not done that. I've kept my nose clean. Because actually you haven't. And all the time we we compared ourselves among ourselves, as Paul says, you are not wise. And I think this is why Isaiah had some basis upon which to appeal to people. He was told, your sin is purged. And in Isaiah 27 verse 9, he gave uh, a prophecy to Israel, and he's uh, to Judah, and he says, by this therefore shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. Now this is exactly the language that was used to Isaiah, that his sin was taken away, his iniquity was purged. And so it says here that basically when Judah destroys their their altars and beat them and the Asherim, the groves and the sun images uh, into powder, then... This is the fruit that will take away their sin and the iniquity of Jacob shall be purged. 
Now, he could say those words with meaning. He could put meaning into those words because he had been there. He had absolutely been there. Now, when he says that he's a man of, an unclean, of unclean lips who lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips, that's Isaiah 6 verse 5, again, later on in the prophecy, he comes back to this. Uh, in Isaiah 59 uh, verse 3, he says to Israel, Your hands are defiled with blood, your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongue mutters wickedness. So he, he knows what it's like to be a person of unclean lips because he's been convicted of it. And so he can tell them that that's how they are. But then he goes on in verse 12, For our transgressions are multiplied before God. Our sins testify against us and we know our iniquities. Our iniquities. You see, he can have a solidarity with those people because he was there. He absolutely was there. So then, the reason why we fail in converting people is because of a lack of connection with them. And this can particularly be so with sort of um, people who trot along to their, their church, their ecclesia or whatever, two or three times a week, in the eyes of the world, live a very clean life, etc. Don't commit the grosser sins. And they somehow lack the power of connection with the majority of people in this world. But that's their fault because actually they have sinned. We have all sinned and sinned seriously. And until you get that, you will not be able to connect or to intersect meaningfully with other people. You will never be able to speak to their heart. It's not any good just boldly standing on a street corner presenting somebody with a tract or a leaflet. I mean, it's not going to convert anyone, hardly. The majority of true conversions are a result of direct connection between persons. A meeting of minds between two sinners, one of whom understands what to do with his or her sinfulness, and the other who doesn't. So then, let's just uh, go back to Isaiah 6 and, and probe a little bit deeper into Isaiah as a preacher. Because he, the forgiven Isaiah in chapter 6, is really our paradigm as I see it. Right, Isaiah 6 verse 1, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw this vision. Now, in chapter 1, verse 1 of Isaiah, you read that Isaiah started prophesying in the days of Isaiah, and then he goes on through the reign of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, in the first five chapters of Isaiah, he's warning Judah of an imminent invasion that is going to come to judge them for their sins. That invasion did not come at the end of Isaiah's reign. It came a lot later in the time of Hezekiah, that was the end of Isaiah's life. So, as often happens in the prophecies, particularly uh, Jeremiah, but it's also here in Isaiah, they are not chronological. They are not, as maybe we would like it, where chapter 1 is at the beginning of the story and then it goes on uh, till chapter 66, which is like the end of the story. They are not chronological. I emphasize that. Those prophecies about imminent invasion of Judah that you got in the first five chapters must have come a lot later in Isaiah's life than the time of 
Isaiah's death, when actually Judah was very prosperous at that time, very secure. So I think that chapter 6 is like a flashback. This is actually, I think, the introduction to Isaiah's ministry. We have a few prophecies, first five chapters, and then we're told, right, this is how it all started. This was Isaiah's inauguration as a prophet. And it started with a conviction of sinfulness. As you read through all the prophets, but Isaiah particularly, you need to ask yourself, who's speaking? Is this God speaking, or is this Isaiah speaking? Now, I know when it's Isaiah speaking, it's still, you know, the record is still inspired by God. But there are different uh, types of inspiration, if you see what I mean. There are the times when Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, and just comes out with words that God has put in his mouth. Other times he says, I understood this, that, and the other from the Lord, and now I'm telling you. And there's other times when he just speaks for himself, still inspired, but it's just his, I say just, uh, I don't mean to say that, um, but it's, it's his words, inspired words, like the words of Isaiah, just like David's Psalms, with David's Psalms, but they were inspired by God. Now, as you read through these prophecies, it's rather difficult to see who's talking at times. I'll give you an example of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be, red like, uh, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now, I would... Clearly, the first uh, part is, first few verses there, is God speaking. And then, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, it seems to me that that's Isaiah. Another one, Isaiah 55 from 6 to 8. Isaiah 55 from 6 to 8. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now that seems to be Isaiah talking, appealing to his audience to repent. Seek the Lord while he can be found. Let the unrighteous man return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. These are the words of Isaiah. Next verse. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, that is God speaking, surely, not Isaiah. So you see that there's a a merger, as I would put it, between Isaiah starts speaking and then it's God speaking. Now, what was going on here? I suggest that the minds of the prophets were so in tune with God that they, their thoughts merged into his thoughts and his thoughts merged into their thoughts. And that's why these pronouns are not very clear. Who's speaking, Isaiah or God? And sometimes it is Isaiah, and then it merges into God. Like here, it's, you know, Isaiah says, Let the unrighteous man return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God... This is clearly Isaiah talking. For he will abundantly pardon, straight on, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. This is God speaking. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. This is God speaking. 
And it seems to me that this is ideally how we should be. That if we are spiritually minded, we will be that close to God. And this is how I think the process of inspiration worked in these prophets. And I don't say that we're inspired in the same way that they were. But all the same, in essence, the way that a human being can become that in tune with the mind and the word of God, that their words, in that sense, become God's words. As Peter says, if any man speak, let him speak as if he is speaking oracles of God. It doesn't mean that every word we say is prophetic or inspired in, in that sense. But all the same, all the same, there is a quite extraordinary level of merger that is possible between God and man. Now, Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2, another example of trying to work out the, uh, the pronouns. Isaiah, as I see it, sings a song. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it, gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it. So, this is Isaiah singing about how God had looked after Judah, that is, his vineyard. Then verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should have bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will destroy it, etc. So then it starts off with Isaiah singing a song to God, to Judah, about God and Judah and the vineyard, and then it sort of merges into God speaking. It's rather like, let's say, uh, uh, people singing a, a, sing, a, a, a song or a hymn. That, in a sense, God comes to speak through their music to an audience. There's a, a merger there. You've got uh, the same idea in chapter 14, this uh, lament over Babylon, this taunt about um, the king of Babylon uh, falling. God, as I said, says to Isaiah, you shall take up this taunt, this taunt song, against the king of Babylon. Thou shalt do this, that is you singular, that is Isaiah. And you shall say, how has the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, etc., etc. So then, God spoke through Isaiah's song. Just as God speaks through our music making, if it's speaking his word, uh, to, to other people. So then, Isaiah's ministry, as it seems to me, was not particularly successful. He says in Isaiah 53, which I take to be another of his uh, songs, verse 1, Who has believed our report? And he goes on to say, well, basically nobody did. He has, but he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I see the links there back to chapter 6, which I suggested is the, the opening of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, his inauguration. He realizes, by the time of Isaiah 53, that, if you like, the mechanics of that purging, the basis of his forgiveness was actually the death of this future Messiah. And so he laments that although no one, as he felt, had believed his report, and the arm of the Lord had not been really revealed through his work, because Judah had not, on a whole, repented, and they had they would reject their Messiah, yet, he says, there would ultimately come a seed, a body of people who would respond to the sufferings of Messiah and who would ultimately be saved. Now, if you feel that your life has not been successful, if you feel that your service of God has not been successful, Isaiah was in just the same position. And I take Isaiah 53, again looking at the pronouns, who has believed our report, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He shall grow up before him, that is God, as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, etc. Uh, This is Isaiah, under inspiration, talking about himself. He's lamenting that actually he doesn't feel he got anywhere, actually. But because he was motivated properly, Because he was motivated by wanting to see God's glory revealed, he rejoices that actually one day, not in his day, but one day, through the death and resurrection of Messiah, the one on account of whom, whose future sacrifice, his sin had been forgiven and his iniquity purged, he says that in the end, a seed will be produced, a group of people will emerge, who will appreciate all these things, and who will be the children whom God intended. Now, a theme that goes through Isaiah is that Israel, or Judah, had been faithless children. They've been rebellious children. You've got it right at the very start of the prophecy, Isaiah 1, verse 2. The Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they rebelled against me. Again, chapter 30, verse 1. And I wonder whether actually Isaiah's own children had done the same. Because he was so in tune with God, it seems that whatever uh, had gone on with him, as it were, was a reflection of what had gone on with, with God. But the point is, he looked forward, ultimately, to that day when everything would finally work out. But until then, he remained personally merged with God, and he personally remained absolutely in in hope of the, the prophecies that he was making. So many times when you read his prophecies of the kingdom, you find him interjecting, into the prophecy, to appeal to Israel to repent. And, you know, we also should not be passive to the content of the gospel, which we preach. You have an example of what I mean there in in Isaiah 2. 
when he gives this well-known prophecy from verse 1 to 4 that in the last days the mountain of the Lord's house should be established in the top of the mountains, etc., etc. And he says, verse 5, he interjects as I see it, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So he gives a prophecy, as it were, thus says the Lord, this is what's going to happen. And then he's like, wow, that is so wonderful, that really this wonderful kingdom is going is to come. Come on, people, come on, let's believe in this. You have it again in, in chapter 10, verse, verse 22. Sorry, I got the, uh, sorry, 31 verse, uh, 31 verse 6, Isaiah 31 verse, verse 6. He talks about how God ultimately will protect Jerusalem, will defend Jerusalem as birds flying, hovering over it. He will preserve it and, and pass over it. And then he interjects, verse 6, Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have so deeply revolted. So he was not passive to the goodness of the good news that he was preaching. And so as we think of the basic things of the faith that we hold, we cannot be passive to those things. That if this is all for real and for true, that the Lord Jesus one day shall return to this earth and establish his kingdom here on this earth, then we have to respond to that by saying, look, come. And that's of course how Revelation 22 ends. Let him that hears all these things say, come. We cannot be passive to it. And the, the most natural thing to do with good news is to share it with somebody else. How many times have you had an email from somebody that you hardly know with some load of uh, baby pictures attached to it? And you think, now, wait a minute, who's this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 I sort of vaguely remember them. Yeah, yeah. Maybe live in another country or something. But and they also don't know you very well. But they want to share that good news. Because good news by its nature cannot be repressed, cannot be held to oneself. So when he gives these prophecies of the kingdom, uh, time is going now, but, but just read through them as you read through Isaiah and look at, again, who's speaking. It, it tends to be a, thus says the Lord, here is the, the, the message of the kingdom, and then Isaiah interjecting in the first person, as it were, saying, you know, Israel, come on, Judah, come on, guys. Let's go for this. Let's repent. Let's chuck the idols out. Come on, let's respond to this great hope that we have, this wonderful future that will happen. Just like, as we started off saying in chapter 6, his iniquity is, is forgiven, his sin is purged, and here am I, send me. And so we come back to where we started, that we stand, each one of us, before the cross of Jesus. And we are convicted we should be convicted of our sins, just like the people who saw it beat their breasts. And the only other time you read about anyone beating their breast is in the, uh, the parable that Jesus told about the publican and the sinner. And the sinner beats, uh, sorry, the publican and the Pharisee, and the, the publican and the sinner, he beats his breast and will not lift up his eyes to heaven and says, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. The people who actually saw 
the crucifixion as it were in real time, they beat their breasts and returned, it says, returned home I assume, but it's the same word for repentance. They returned to God, hopefully. And so we cannot be passive, not at all, to our standing in front of him there. We, you know, let yourself be convicted. Don't hold on to your old idea that, well, actually I did that because you see, you see, this, this, this and the other was there in the background. Look, just let yourself be convicted. Just let yourself be convicted. And let yourself be convicted of forgiveness out of that same vision. And then it becomes natural to do what Isaiah did, to merge with God. So that his words merge into God's words. His song becomes God's song to Israel. Your failure or otherwise in your ministry, in your service of God, maybe in raising your kids or whatever... This also becomes subsumed beneath the wonder of the fact that we are on God's side and we are, by his grace, ultimately going to be part of an eternal future whereby the true seed does serve him and his kingdom really shall come. And on that basis, we will be able to go out as forgiven sinners from this place feeling his forgiveness at a point, a nanosecond even, in in human time, knowing that forgiveness, feeling the purging of ourselves, and we'll be able to connect, we suggested, with condemned Gentiles, like Isaiah did with Moab, with the sinners in Zion, the hypocrites within the ecclesia, with those who have lost their faith completely, with a people of unclean lips, we will be able to empathize with them and connect with them. And believe me, in due course, we will be used by God to bring them under himself.